0: hello and welcome to episode 31 of on liberty from the center for independent studies i'm your host salvatore babonis and joining me today is veteran journalist tom switzer host of between the lines on abc radio national oh that's right and executive director of the center for independent (laughs) studies tom (laughs) switzer welcome to on liberty
1: salvatore it's great to be with you and can i say from the outset congratulations on a great show you know one of the silver linings to this pandemic for think tanks has been able to use this great technology such as Zoom. And you've run a really good show right from the outset of the pandemic. Uh, I think it started in early April and it's it's going great. I'll never miss an episode. So it's great to be here finally.
0: Well, well thank you. I want to challenge you at the outset. Tom Switzer, Executive Director of the Center for Independent Studies, has your organization accepted $650,000 donation <laughs> from pedophile and sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein? <laughs>
1: Look, it's really no laughing matter. Of course not. No. And I'm actually surprised that Kevin Rudd, who's an old friend of mine, um, as chairman of this think tank, certainly over the last two to three years, and as a board member since 2014. Not this think tank, mind
0: you. Yes, International Peace Institute.
1: Yes, yes. International Peace Institute. I think it's based in Norway. Um, I think it's one thing for a board member not to be aware of all the financial. Donations. Uh, I don't blame him when he was a board member, but as chairman mm-hmm. since early 2018, he should have been aware that I mean, $650,000 presumably came in over a uh, uh, over a period of five or so years. But I'm struck that he he wasn't aware of it. I mean, if you I've I've dealt with two chairmen uh, directly here at CIS during my tenure, Peter Mason in 2017, 2018 and Nicholas Moore since early 2019. And and mark my words, they would look at all the prominent donations. And if they had seen that Jeffrey Epstein had donated significant money to CIS, that's a red flag. So I think that the the, the best thing you can say about Kevin right here is that he was derelict in his duty.
0: Well, I think I know two chairmen who are going to be quite relieved uh, when they watch today's episode of On Liberty. <laughs> but Tom, well, very let's, good get, let's get to the main event. Uh, Trump or Biden, who's going to win?
1: Well, all the available public polling evidence for what it's worth, uh, not to mention the betting markets and the so-called experts, they expect Joe Biden to win. Uh, However, as I've argued many times during the course of the last few weeks, whenever one predicts a Biden victory, we have to acknowledge that we also thought that Donald Trump would lose four years ago. Mm -hmm. and some of us knew that there was a pathway there for Trump uh, if he could find a way of depressing the Democratic base vote while at the same time turning out the so-called great unwashed and Trump shocked us but he was helped immeasurably by Hillary Clinton who took her own voters for granted and then went about demeaning Donald Trump's voters as uh, deplorables so Um, We have to recognise that we were wrong four years ago. Many of us were also wrong about the Australian federal election early last year. And some of us were wrong about Brexit four years ago. So the polls aren't an exact science. They never have been, but they've become less reliable over the years. Biden currently has, according to the real clear average politics, a lead of something like 7% in the national polls. But the key, as you well know, Salvatore, is those uh, battleground states. And that's where the race has narrowed.
0: Right. but let me ask you a more important question. As someone who directs a think tank, who's in the world of ideas, who should win?
1: You know, it's a bit like uh, what Henry Kissinger said during the Iraq-Iran war in the 1980s. Um, It's too bad both sides can't lose. I know that (laughs) sounds a bit crude, but um, I carry... No brief for the Democrats. I think that the center of gravity in the Democratic Party has lurched to the left in the last decade, uh, particularly since the arrival of Bernie Sanders when he rudely burst on the scene in 2015, 2016. The party activists are genuine socialists. I'm not saying they sympathize with the old communism, but they want much higher levels of government intervention in the economy. And uh, they are pushing this ghastly cancel culture onto the American community. So I think uh, the the Democrats have all sorts of problems, although I think Biden himself is instinctively a mainstream centre-left pragmatic Mm politician, The problem though, is that he has no firm convictions. He's weak and he's widely seen as a Trojan horse for the increasingly dominant left faction of the Democratic Party. On Trump, look, he's done some very good things. Uh, As you say, I'm head of CIS, so we believe in small markets, free competition. Uh, productivity-enhancing reform, and there's no question that the tax cuts, both income and company tax cuts, plus deregulation that Donald Trump pushed in 2017, 2018, helped lead to America's booming economy. Mm. Uh, So he's done some good things. I'd even applaud some of his foreign policy decisions. However, he is so rude and crude and lewd that it makes it very difficult uh, for someone who believes in an inclusive and prudent conservatism to really embrace such a guy. He, he has, I think, debased public discourse in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's very reluctant for someone like me to be an enthusiastic supporter of Donald Trump. I, I readily concede that there are a lot of supporters of CIS, a lot of my conservative friends, both here in Australia and in America, who do like the Donald. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and perhaps there's understandable reasons because he attracts the right enemies. Uh, but in terms of a public policy figure, he's not my kind of guy. I think we maybe saw a completely
0: different and maybe a rebranded of newly educated Donald Trump in the second presidential debate. Would you reverse what you just said if you could have, well, debate two Trump instead of debate one Trump?
1: You know, uh, Salvatore, I think that if Donald Trump loses this election, he might look back at that first debate as being a real turning point. Um, it was a depressing debate spectacle. Biden was marginally better, but Donald Trump was exceedingly rude. Um, I I just watched it in the office with a couple of our CIS colleagues and I cringed so many times, but you're quite right. The second debate was a much more disciplined performance by Trump. And I think he made some good points, uh, particularly on the question of Biden's pledge to transition. That That was his word, transition a lot of uh, shale gas, oil workers, um, coal workers, away from fossil fuels into renewables. Now, whatever you think about climate change and and the whole process of decarbonising the economy, this is a process that is happening around the world, but it's the, it's the way you go about doing it. And I thought Trump had a really good response that transitioning people, hundreds of thousands of people, by the way, who work in battleground states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, um, Texas, which is now a battleground state, hard to believe. Um, there are a lot of folks in those states that are heavily dependent on fossil fuels for their livelihoods. Mm-hmm. And I think the danger for Biden here is that he's doing a bit what, like Shorten did in 2019, Bill Shorten, the Labor opposition leader, saying that it's easy to transition from one industry to another at a very quick time, quick period of time. Uh, that'll displace a lot of people. And that creates a lot of angst. And I suspect a lot of those folks in those industries will vote for Donald Trump. And that debate helped Donald Trump on that issue.
0: Mm. Let me say a quick hello uh, to some of our viewers, Gay, Anthony, Suresh, Mike. Uh, we're thrilled to have you watching today. All the rest of you who are watching, get in there in the comments box. Get your questions in. We'll get to questions, obviously, in a few minutes. Uh, Tom, we're of course, we can't avoid this year talking about Coronavirus and Donald Trump has taken a lot of heat for his well, poor leadership during the coronavirus crisis. That said, the US has done no worse than other Western democracies, you know, in Western Europe, where um, leaders have been praised for their coronavirus response. Why has coronavirus become such an albatross around Trump's neck when? you know, for Merkel, for Macron, even for Boris Johnson, it doesn't seem to have really hurt them.
1: Well, it's a very good point. I mean, all too often Trump gets attacked by the media for his handling of the crisis. I think in some respects that's justified by the way, but they do overlook what's happening on the European continent, don't they? It's a very good point. I understand that the United States represents the world's 4% of the world's population and Figures that I read in Real Clear Politics just recently: 22% of the world's COVID deaths. So, by that criteria, that's that's a catastrophic failure for any administration. Having said that, a lot of the blame also goes to the states in the United States. I mean, New York State, for example, is a very democratic state. Right. Cuomo, the governor there, doesn't seem to cop the kind of criticism that Trump does. And the other point to bear in mind, and this is a point that Trump made in the second debate against Joe Biden. Is that when Donald Trump, around the time that Scott Morrison did the same thing, when they uh, put a ban on China travel, I think this was in late January, early February, very early on, Mm -hmm. uh, Trump was denounced by many Democrats, including Joe Biden, including the Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi for indulging in either racism or xenophobia or both. Mm -hmm. But Trump was right on that issue. And uh, again, I don't think the media have held senior Democrats to account for getting that decision horribly wrong.
0: Right. Let me turn to the economy. Now, of course, all developed countries and many, many less developed countries have had severe economic recessions due to coronavirus. Yet, according to OECD estimates, the United States is going to have the best performing economy this year among rich OECD countries. Uh, That is, it's going to have a recession, but a much more mild recession than others. Now, perhaps not coincidentally, the United States is the only country that has not had a major coronavirus rescue package, a government-organized rescue package. Uh, How do you square these? Are the rescue packages maybe doing more economic harm than good?
1: Well, look, um, some of our listeners may have heard me make this point before it's a quote from Jonathan Friedland from the Guardian I I always by the way read the Guardian I prefer the UK <laughs> Guardian to the Australian Guardian because I always want to know what our enemies and opponents are saying I think it's always important you know the John Stuart Mill that those who know only their view know as little of it and only until you've rebutted your opponent's arguments at their strongest do you know your own side's weaknesses so I always read the Guardian <laughs> every day and at the height of the crisis in probably the third week of March Jonathan Friedland who's one of my favorite left-leaning journalists he quipped that just as there are no atheists on a sinking ship there are no free marketeers during a pandemic Mm. (laughs) (laughs) and I think that that is actually what's happened all major industrialized countries have presided over much higher levels of government spending and stimulus packages and income support measures The United States, to be fair, Salvatore, has pump primed the economy in a major Mm -hmm. way, but they haven't had the kind of wage subsidies that are clearly evident in this country and in Britain and many parts of Europe. Look, I think the way out of this crisis is for governments to put in place sound productivity enhancing reforms that create incentives for entrepreneurs to grow the economy, to create wealth, to hire people. That's the way we're going to get out of this crisis. And I think that's actually one of Donald Trump's strongest messages, if he stays on message, that the Republican strategy of market economics is the best way of getting America out of this pandemic induced recession. It's a key point to make. We're in a recession around the world, but it's not the fault of markets, it's not the fault of competition, it's not the fault of business, we're in this liquidity crisis because it's a government-induced recession. It's a virus-induced recession. The government has shut down the economy for much of the year, and, um, that, and it's designed to fight the virus. That's the reason why we're in this recession. So be wary of those of our intellectual opponents who are trying to use this crisis as a justification to permanently expand the size of government and therefore the burden on taxpayers. We need to release burdens on taxpayers to grow the economy. And my sense is that the Republican Party would be better at that than the Democratic Party.
0: Well, let me push you a little bit more on this because this is something I find fascinating that in the United States, uh, our, you see my pin right there our political system has been criticized for not delivering the kinds of coronavirus relief that other countries have because of our supposedly dysfunctional political system where democrats and republicans can't work together yet us gdp for the third quarter is going to be released today in the us the expectation the consensus forecast is 35% growth and <laughs> the us is in the us the coronavirus recession is mm. essentially over now, I, I want to just really push this point. The one country that has not had a massive, coordinated coronavirus economic response is the one country that's growing fastest now, and that the OECD
1: expects will grow fastest next year. What do you think? Well, there's a lot of truth to that, but again, you don't want to, uh, you know, ignore the fact that Congress has already passed pretty significant stimulus packages to government or debt money to to pump Well, a one-time cash payment yeah right but no well and also bear in mind that uh congress and the president are currently deliberating a new Mm -hmm. stimulus package Mm -hmm. and that probably won't be passed until after the election and uh, if the democrats regain the house and win the senate um and if Biden's the president, then you'll get even a much bigger stimulus bill that's passed through the legislature. So look, let's not overstate Trump's market reform credentials here. He's a populist, he's a a protectionist. He's done some good things on tax cuts and deregulation, but I don't think his instincts are to subscribe to fiscal rigor and discipline. I think politicians who support those kind of policies Uh, such as Paul Ryan, the former Speaker of the House. They're in very short supply in today's Washington.
0: Let me say some more hellos. Uh, Chris, Christopher, Cameron, Winton, Courtney. uh, Great to have you watching today. Now, Tom, there's some really... Tragic but also alarming news coming out of Philadelphia, where we've seen another outbreak of rioting in the United States. This was due to a killing of a, an African American man by a police officer. Now, that African American man was armed with a knife and apparently hostile when shot. So this is not one of those cases of egregious uh, police violence. This, you know, there may be an argument that there was excessive use of force, but you know, when someone comes at you with a knife. Uh, we certainly can have some broad latitude for people overreacting. Uh, Nonetheless, it still resulted in riots that have seen looting, burning in, in Philadelphia. Now, Pennsylvania is one of the main battleground states seen as must win by both candidates. How do you think this Philadelphia rioting, what are the political implications of it for next week's election?
1: Well, you're absolutely right, Salvatore. This is yet another case. It's a familiar story, isn't it? Where and this is in the this time it's the City of Brotherly Love, as you know that's how Philadelphia is termed.
0: <laughs> its own so ironic term for itself. Yes, yes.
1: City of Brotherly Love. I always think about that when my beloved Dallas Cowboys play in Philadelphia. The Philadelphia <laughs> Eagles and their fans are the nastiest fans in the NFL, but I changed the subject. <laughs> but look, you know it's a, it's a familiar story where these riots break out after the Shooting of a of an African American man by uh, police. It's a, it's a, it's a depressing story. Um, it, it precedes Donald Trump. This happened um, uh, during the Obama years. It's wrong to blame Trump for this. I think there is uh, a, a genuine issue of police brutality. Mm. Um, having said that, though, I do think that some of these progressive cities, and Philadelphia is a quintessential progressive city. This is the Wall Street Journal editorial uh, board. They they just make the point that decisions by their leadership are not likely to uh, reduce these kind of tragedies. And this is from the uh, Wall Street Journal, the City Council, so this was just after uh, the recent northern summer in Philadelphia, the City Council reduced police funding by more than $33 million. Later this week, the Council in Philadelphia is expected to vote on a bill that would permanently ban tear gas, pepper spray, and other less than lethal weapons during protests. Now, um, answering your question, I think that the decisions by the progressive leadership in Philadelphia warm the hearts of many of those socialists and left-wing activists in the Democratic Party. However, I do think those kind of decisions do disturb a lot of those suburban voters in Philadelphia. So as you probably know, a lot of the college educated suburban voters in many suburbs of Philadelphia, in 2016, they held their nose to vote for Donald Trump because they held Hillary Clinton with disdain. However, this time, all the available evidence indicates that those same voters will either stay at home or even vote for Joe Biden because they can't stand Donald Trump's polarizing style of politics, never mind his character and temperament. That said, these kind of decisions make, will make those folks more likely to actually vote for Donald Trump, I would imagine, because law and order is a big issue for a Republican, particularly when progressive cities are pursuing policies like defund the police.
0: Well, thanks, Tom. Now is the time that everyone's been waiting for. It's the moment when I ask our viewers to please Like this video, (laughs) subscribe to the CIS YouTube (laughs) channel. You'll be glad you did, but you won't just be glad you did. We'll be glad you did because the more people who engage with the video, those comments down in the box, those like buttons, the subscriptions, encourages YouTube to show the video to other people people. And that's what we'd really like. We'd really like to get this message out to as broad an audience as possible. We'd also love to have you as a member. Joining the Center for Independent Studies is only $40. That's Australian dollars. For those of you overseas, that might sound like even less for you. Uh, If you're already a member, you can upgrade to the $250 membership level. And if you do upgrade, I will send you a copy of Liberty and Liberalism, a signed copy, personally signed by me, Uh, The first work of classical liberalism published in Australia, republished by the Center for Independent Studies under Tom's predecessor, Greg. Crikey, Salmon, so
1: you're doing my job better than I do. (laughs) Tom,
0: Tom, everyone does your job better than you do, but we still still love you. And in fact, we have so many questions. I had to cut short the questions I have for you because we have so many from the audience. Everybody wants to either. It is interesting,
1: American politics, I've found uh, throughout the last uh, 20 years when I've been being a commentator on American politics, it's, it's amazing how many Australians are interested in the subject, isn't it?
0: Everyone wants to either pick your brain or, or suck it out, <laughs> one or the other, depending how they feel about what you've said today. And I'm going to start with one that's maybe a hostile comment, but uh, question, but well, you judge. Uh, Suresh in Melbourne asks, how critical is the concentration of media power? And he's especially worried about the manipulation by the Murdoch press in determining the results of the US election.
1: Well, Suresh, uh, as you know, uh, the aforementioned Kevin Rudd is trying to uh, kickstart a Royal Commission into this very question in the Australian context. Um, uh, But Murdoch has far more influence and reach in this country than he does in the United States. I mean, in the United States, he's got the Fox News Channel. He's got the New York Post, um, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, They're the three main outlets, I think. Um, plus obviously the Fox channel. Now, I, I've i been watching Fox News since I lived in Washington in 1996. I go through phases. I used to watch Fox News special report, which is six o'clock on the East Coast every night because they had an outstanding panel, including one of my favorite columnists, Charles Krauthammer, who was a critic of Donald Trump's, by the way. He's now dead. But there is significant influence uh, of the of the Fox News Channel uh, in the Republican Party grassroots. I think that's true. But as a percentage of the media market, it's still pretty small. It's a very fragmented, fragmented market in the United States. And you have to remember that the broad cross-section of the media in the United States, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, CBS, NBC, ABC American News, uh, PBS, NPR, the public broadcasters, uh, not to mention MSNBC on the cable network, CNN, Suresh, they're overwhelmingly not just anti-Trump, which is somewhat understandable because in many respects, Trump brings this media scrutiny onto himself, but they're very anti-Republican. And I made this point yesterday at the Canberra, at the National Press Club in Canberra, that what's happening here is that the term objective journalism, it's increasingly a misnomer because every day, every decision in newsrooms made by editors and reporters, subjectively, they let their own biases cloud their judgment. Now, sometimes they don't do this as deliberately as say some Fox News hosts, but it's evident. And nothing demonstrates that point more than the media campaign against Trump on the Russiagate controversy. I mean, for the first two years of Trump's presidency, the mainstream media morning, noon and night went after Trump on this allegation that his campaign was in cahoots or in collusion with Moscow. And as the Mueller report made very clear, there was no evidence to support those claims. If anything, uh, there are questions to be asked about the connection between the outgoing Obama administration officials in late 2016, early 2017 and the FBI. The mainstream media doesn't cover that. Only Fox News and The Wall Street Journal really cover those issues. So I do think it's more complicated uh, than the premise of your question. But it's a good one because we're having that debate right now in Australia, which I think is probably more understandable, given that Murdoch really does have more say in the Australian debate than he does in America. I don't agree with Kevin right on the Royal Commission, but I can understand why many of our opponents would, would make those kind of calls.
0: Tom, I'll I'll give you a break from my overly critical comments to give you one from Mike. I agree with everything you say, Tom. (laughs) It's hard to support the Donald, but there's nothing good about the new Democrats. Chris asks an early question. Well, it was an early question. We took so long to get to it. I'm sorry, Chris. What effect, if any, do you think the Tony Bobulinski revelations? And this was the interview where uh, Bobulinski talked about Hunter Biden and said that these emails specifically referred to Joe Biden as the big guy being involved and paid off in these these Hunter Biden scandals. What do you think this effect in dodgy Hunter Biden laptop contents will have on the American voting public?
1: My sense is it won't have a huge impact because the story is pretty much confined to the New York Post and Fox News, the the Murdoch outlets that Suresh mentioned and to a lesser extent, the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Um, the news pages of all the major newspapers and media outlets generally, they claim they can't verify the story. That's why they're not reporting it. Uh, that might be true. What is inexcusable is that those big tech companies like Facebook and Twitter are censoring the story. I don't think that's their role. If it's not a verifiable story, people will find out. But I don't think that the big tech companies should be censoring that. And To the extent that they have it may well be counterproductive. Uh, I think it's a story that really just reaffirms the sentiments of Donald Trump's base, which is a very strong 45% of the electorate. Not sure that many people who want to see the end of Trump are going to be swayed by a story that is essentially about Joe Biden's son Hunter. Mm -hmm. So I suspect it will have a limited impact Salvatore.
0: Okay. Christopher is curious, has loser's consent gone out the window, making it far more difficult for a prospective Biden Harris administration to pursue its agenda? And I might add, making it more difficult for a prospective Trump administration, uh, Trump Pence
1: administration, to pursue their agenda? Well, it depends on the outcome of the election. I mean, my great fear, and I suspect this will be the case, is that the Democrats keep the House representatives. They have a decent chance of winning the Senate. I mean, when you have states like South Carolina and Arizona, which are red states, they're they're Republican states. This is the state of Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. It's the state of Barry Goldwater, the conscience of American conservatism and John McCain. When the polls say that the Republicans could lose those Senate seats, there's a decent chance the Democrats might just pick the Senate. And if the polls are right, and Biden wins the election, the Democrats, uh, you just watch, they will use this opportunity over the next two years to make some serious radical changes. They're more than likely going to end the Senate filibuster, which means, which forestalls the need to compromise with the minority. You need 60 votes to pass major legislation. That'll mean it will be just 50 votes. Democrats would have the numbers. They'd probably stack the Supreme Court. They'd probably just appoint or nominate and confirm two left liberal justices to the Supreme Court, which would help um, stabilise the balance of power on the Supreme Court. And they're more than likely going to, uh, if they get control of the legislature and the executive, there's a very good chance, I think, that they will grant statehood to Puerto Rico and Washington DC, and with them, two new senators over the next four years. Uh, and those senators are more than likely going to be Democratic senators. And this will allow the legislature, you would think, uh, to uh, put in place a lot of those pent up progressive ambitions. Um, I wouldn't rule that prospect out. Having said that, Barack Obama uh, and Bill Clinton had control of the Senate and the House during their first two years of their presidency, and they met the wrath of the electorate at the midterm elections in 94 for Bill Clinton, and 2010 in Barack Obama. So there are risks in going down this road, but I think if the Democrats get control of the Congress, don't be surprised if they try to ran through a lot of progressive legislation. And that would not be the kind of legacy, by the way, you would expect from a populist disruptor in Washington. Well,
0: let, let me follow up, and um, I, with apologies to our listeners who have their questions waiting, but I
1: I just can't I'll try to be shorter. Sorry, I,
0: I yeah. no, it's my I, I'm going inserting an extra question. The Democratic narrative, if they were to appoint new Supreme Court justices, would be that the Trump interlude was some kind of aberration in American politics that had to be corrected, and it strikes me that many mainstream Republicans would probably go along with that interpretation. Do you think that, you know, many establishment Republicans would actually welcome a, you know, Democratic Democratic sweep as long as it swept away the legacy of Donald Trump?
1: Oh, no question. I mean, you may recall my interview with George F. Will, the distinguished Pulitzer Prize winning columnist from the Washington Post. He's been writing a column for the Post twice a week since 1973, 74. Uh, He was adjunct, scheduled to be our John Bernithan Lecturer this year, but we did a Zoom event that's attracted more than 420,000 views. It's not because of me, it's because of George Will, and he's your classic never-Trump conservative, and there are people like him in the Senate, uh, in the House. They're a minority, though. No, I think Donald Trump has completely transformed the Republican Party. This is Will's point, too. It's no longer the party of Ronald Reagan. It's a party of Donald Trump, and uh, my sense is that... um, those mainstream Republicans that you mentioned, they may vote for Biden this time, but I don't think they'd, with the exception of perhaps some foreign policy decisions, they wouldn't really embrace his cultural, social and economic agenda. They're, they're, those folks you mentioned, I think, are gonna be increasingly homeless. And look, this represents the fragmentation of politics around the world. Uh, in the United States, the Democratic Party, despite the fact they may well win big next week, is a very divided party. You've got the the, the, the socialist left, left-wing progressive types who are the activists, that's where all the energy is. They support people like Bernie Sanders. But then you've got the establishment wing that get their funding from Silicon Valley and Wall Street. They support the more censorist or center-left view of the Democratic Party. But the Republican Party is also divided where you've got the Trump populists and then the old mainstream Republicans. But those old mainstream Republicans, Salvatore, I think are becoming increasingly extinct.
0: Well, on that question, Winton very kindly asks, uh, do you think Americans should be worried about a new kind of liberal authoritarianism if biden wins and i say kindly because he's obviously read my book the new authoritarianism uh Mm. thank you which is
1: a very good book that was reviewed (laughs) very favorably by the wall street journal
0: oh thank you tom but but do you think we should be worried if biden wins if there is that kind of sweep of a new kind of liberal authoritarianism in the united states
1: there's always a danger in overstating one's case it depends on the circumstances and the conditions at the moment but look i think that the um Winsome makes a point essentially about this ghastly cancel culture, and we at CIS have published and written a lot about this subject over the course of the last year or two. Uh, I, uh, you know, it, this cancel culture, which has got worse during the Trump era, by the way, and I wonder if that's because the left are fighting back against Trump. In other words, Trump might be making a bad situation worse, even though his instincts are right. But this cancel culture, has far more reach and influence in the United States than it does here in Australia Mm. or New Zealand by far. And I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. A Boeing executive uh, was forced to resign a few months ago after he was subjected to a nasty Twitter mob campaign. And his sin was in 1987, 33 years ago, (laughs) he wrote an article, I think it was in a student journal um, saying that women should not fighting combat, military combat, which was the mainstream view at the time. And he had to resign as an executive from Boeing. Uh, A few months ago, shortly after the death of George Floyd, uh, a University of Chicago economist tweeted that the Black Lives Matter movement has shot itself in the foot by supporting calls to defund the police. Well, again, he was subjected to this nasty Twitter campaign and the result, he was kicked off the Federal Reserve of Chicago. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is where people's livelihoods have been upended because they dare air unfashionable views, mm-hmm. um, and I I think Winsome's point's a good one. But will so, these trends continue if the Democrats have a clean sweep? Right, um, Can, mm-hmm. it's very disturbing.
0: Cameron asks, how much do you attribute President Trump's apparent combativeness to his well, frankly? excruciating treatment uh, by the mainstream media, the debate moderators, Hollywood, I mean, the whole intelligentsia. I mean, wouldn't you also get defensive if you had the whole intellectual world against you? And I'm not including Hollywood in the intellectual world.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I think polarization goes both ways. There are a lot of commentators who think that Donald Trump is responsible for this crisis. Uh, this polarisation, the hyperpartisanship, partisanship um, but he's a symptom. Um, in 2013-2014, Robert Gates, who was the Defence Secretary to Presidents Bush and Obama, Republican and Democrat, he was asked what's the greatest national security threat that the United States faces, and he said it was the two square miles that encompasses the Capitol building and the White House. The polarisation, the hyperpartisanship. Now, he made those remarks well before Donald Trump arrived on the scene, that polarization's got worse during the last four years, but it's not all Donald Trump's faults. Uh, remember Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, she tore up the president's State of the Union address behind her podium earlier this year. Uh, remember um, Maxine Waters, she's a veteran uh, Democratic Congresswoman from California, she's called on people to harass, intimidate and bully Trump officials whenever they're seen at restaurants or gas stations or outside their home. Uh, If you wear a MAGA hat, a Make America Great hat, there's a good chance that in polite society, you'll be denounced as a racist, as uh, that young kid uh, experienced at that pro-life rally early last year. You know, Trump is fighting back against this. So it's very simplistic to blame Donald Trump for the toxic polarization. He's fighting it back against what he sees as very nasty left-wing activists. And there is some truth to that, as I just said.
0: Well, following up on that, Gay asks, is this hostility really more about the message than about the man? Uh, We always focus on Donald Trump himself, but is the real problem that people don't like his message and to extend that his supporters
1: well you've got to remember when when trump burst on the scene in 2015 2016 it took a while for many of us seasoned experts to understand what was going on here but he was tapping into widespread legitimate anxieties about the state of middle america and i have to say to some extent the same thing could be said about bernie sanders and the democratic party Uh, Francis Fukuyama, the distinguished American intellectual who's been a guest here at CIS several times, had a very important article in foreign affairs in the northern summer of 2016, and he made the point that Sanders and Trump, although they express themselves in different ways, represent two sides of the same coin, this populist backlash against an establishment in Washington and New York um, that have made the lives of a lot of ordinary people worse. And by that they meant globalization, technological change, um, identity politics. A lot of these folks were the losers of globalization and technological change, and they were unhappy about the pace of radical socio-cultural change as well. And that's why they turned to people like Trump. Now, does Trump have the answers for these folks? I don't think so. Um, But at the same time, uh, it's understandable why he's resonating with so many folks who feel let down by the Washington elite, both sides of politics.
0: Now, we still have four or five uh, questions and comments uh, waiting, but it's time for us to start wrapping up. I apologize to our listeners that I took too much time asking my own questions, not enough asking yours. Well,
1: look, Salvatore, can I just jump in and say that those folks, if they really want it, they're more than welcome to email me um, and I'll respond to them later today if they like.
0: Fantastic. That's very generous of you, Tom. I do have to ask you one final question, which is what does all this mean for Australia? Australias are fascinated by the US election. They they're very passionate about it. Does it actually matter for Australia?
1: Well, I think uh, the United States will remain our most important security ally, regardless of who wins next week. And um, that's because uh, there are very important defense and security ties between Washington and Canberra that go back to the end of World War II, and the onset of the Cold War and the Suez Crisis in 1956. And I think in many respects, it's driven by genuine anxiety about China's rise. Um, So that alliance will continue. But in terms of the politics of it, I think we in Australia, despite the fact that we often fret and moan about the state of our public discourse, and the last 10 years have seen a lot of churning of our political leaders, and we fret and wail about social media and the toxic and destabilizing impact that has on public discourse. And that's all true. But I think we should take a moment here to recognize that as bad as things are here in this country, I think the polarization and the partisanship is much worse in Washington. And I don't know how this comes to an end.
0: Tom Switzer, thank you very much for joining us today on On Liberty.
1: Always a pleasure. Great to be with you, Salvatore, and great show. Thanks so much.
0: (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. And I look forward to watching your episode as well. You said you watch every episode. You'll have to watch this one. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. And next (laughs) week, of course, if Trump wins, I should let all our supporters who think and hope Trump wins Hold me to account. Make sure that I wipe the egg off my face if Trump
0: wins. <laughs> Tom, no one's going to win next week, but, we'll, but we will follow up in three or four weeks when the election is finally right. called. Uh, thanks also to our producer, Emily Holmes, our executive producer, Max Hawk Weaver. Uh, the executive director of the Center for Independent Studies is none other than Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Babonis. Next week, James Morrow. Watch us then.
1: Thanks, Salvatore. That was great, mate. I hope you enjoyed it.